Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture story. So hello for joining this episode of the Global Marketing Podcast. And today we welcome Stephen Murta, who has a 346 formula, or he calls it Triscadecophobia. Now, I'm not <laughs> sure if our translators would even know how to work with that because I don't even understand what it is, but we're going to get into that. So by the time we end, all of us will know. So hi, Stephen. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Wendy. It's a real pleasure to be from the other side of the pond in Ireland, in Dublin, Ireland. Yes, yes. So who yeah, has it's a the... pleasure to be with you today. It is, it is wonderful to have you, and I love your, your Irish accent, so that'll be a joy to talk <laughs> to you today. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. <laughs> so Triscadecophobia, what is that? Yeah, may, maybe I should explain. I think it might, might make, make sense. Uh, I run a, a company, uh, Wendy, called The Exhibition Guy. Very nice and simple. Okay. And what I do is um, I spent the last uh, 25, 26 years in, in the exhibition industry working with clients who exhibit at trade fairs uh, internationally. Uh, and one of the biggest issues with exhibitions and trade fairs is it's the most expensive way of, of marketing your business if you do it wrong. But it's also the most effective way of getting new business if you do it right. And what I find and why I set up my own business, the exhibition guy, was I worked with a lot of clients who would just arrive at a trade show hall they wouldn't think about their booth, their setup, their, any of the marketing they do. And they just arrive and, make, and assume that would all happen. Now, that's a really expensive way of doing business. It's also not a very strategic way of doing business. So I set up a business based on helping people to exhibit at trade fairs. And where the 346 came from is, is I tried to simplify for our clients, who are largely exhibitors, on what are the three things you need to do before you exhibit at a trade fair or to make it a success. And when I asked that question, uh, nobody seemed to either know or they seemed to come up with 350 things they could do. And that wasn't very, that's not a great strategy, to be honest. So I came up with this idea of what I call triscodecophobia for exhibitors, and this is specifically for people who are exhibiting at trade shows, called triscodecophobia. And triscodecophobia is the fear of the number 13. All around the world, there's this fear of the number 13. So for me, what it is, is I tried to turn things on its head and go, how can we make something that's really simple, that makes sense to people, and that obliterates this idea that 13 should be an unlucky number. Now, it's not that I'm superstitious or anything like that, but it, it came to me that there's three really important numbers when you exhibit at, at trade fairs, and the three numbers are three, four, and six, and they add up to 13. 13, aha, uh -huh. yeah. now it all ties that's together. Where it's where it all came from. So in very simplistic terms, what it means is before you exhibit at a show, you need to be very, very clear what your objectives are, why you're there, what you want to achieve by it. Most people don't know that. In fact, almost 70% of people will do an exhibition without a plan. So setting three clear objectives means that you've, you've, you're increasing your chance of success because you're not relying on just one number, which is a sales figure to say, I, I sold that amount of product. So we focus on three clear things. And when you do that, your mind and your brain focuses on three separate things. But it means that you're maximizing the opportunity of success. So let's say for argument's sake, 
you don't hit the number you want to sell when you're exhibiting on a trade fair, but you hit the other two metrics. Now it's still a success. Okay, you mightn't have got your third one, but you're on way to, to getting your sales figure because you will get it over a longer period of time. So setting three clear objectives is really, really important. It's the first key principle of any exhibition. And okay. most people don't do that. So you know what we do. We provide foreign language translation interpreting services and we specialize in global marketing. So say we're going to a yeah. conference and we want to set three key objectives. How would you walk me through setting objectives for that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, in our situation, we sit down and say, Wendy, what do you want to achieve by exhibiting the sh at this show? And you say, okay, I want to, I want to get seven new clients or 25 new clients or whatever it is. And that's great. And that, that, that makes complete sense, by the way. But let's take a step back. How do you get to those seven or eight clients or whatever amount of clients you want to get? You've got to set ideas. How many people do you need to talk to? How many people do you need to actually maybe in some cases demonstrate your product or service to before they'll buy into your idea? So it's about setting markers down to say, I need to target. If I want to talk to seven people, I need to target 35 people again i'm just making the numbers up uh, uh -huh. so now my step in the office before i exhibit is how am i attracting those 35 people to come to the exhibition and now more importantly how am i now getting those seven people to engage with me on my stand so that they're actually interested in working with rapport that's essentially what we do so for me the first objective is how do, or the first way we do it is we decide what do you ultimately want to achieve out of, out of the show and of course it's sales but let's not just go and exhibit at a trade fair in Germany or in, in Orlando just to get sales. Yes, of course, that's part of it. But if you go there and don't focus on other things, all you're doing is aiming at sales figures. And again, of course, they're important. Maybe Wendy wants to be seen by the top three exhibition organizers in the world to become on their training panel or on their um, uh, linguistics panel, if you want to call it that. So do you, is there an objective that you want to actually have meaningful conversations with five exhibition organizers from all around the world? Maybe you're looking for a new, a new translator, a Russian translator. Again, just making that up. And you're exhibiting in Moscow. Are we walking away from Moscow with four or five people on our books who now can become trainer for us because they speak Russian? So what, what I'm saying is you've got to look at exhibiting as looking at a multiplicity of objectives. It's not just about the sales figure, because if you look at the sales figure, there's a good chance you're going to be disappointed because in trade shows, you don't get your sales necessarily on the day. It could be six months later. It could be a year later. Right. But what you don't want to do is walk away and go back to your office after the trade show and go, oh, that was a complete disaster. It didn't work. When you set three clear objectives in specific areas, you walk away and go, okay, I didn't achieve that, but I'm well on the way to it. I achieved that and I achieved that. Therefore, the exhibition is a success. Now, I'm not saying you ignore the other one, mm -hmm. but you've got to look at it as it's too expensive, Wendy, to spend all this money on a trade to hang your, your return on investment down to one number, which is sales. And that's right. what most people do. And it's, it's why they get frustrated. And it's why I say to people, let's not look at return on investment. Let's look at what we call return on objectives. And it's, it's a far greater metric for anyone in business who's exhibiting on a trade fair to say, this is what I want to achieve and this is how I'm going to do it. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting when I go to trade shows, I often go with the objective to meet as many people as I can and form relationships. And so I'll come home with a 
pile of cards in the old day and the new day. Um, it was LinkedIn connections, and now it's, <laughs> you know, names off of, of webinars or, you know, chats. But it's everything. It's, you know, what kind of, because we're not going to sell immediately on the trade show. It's building yeah, a relationship so. over time for what we do. That's exactly Looking it. for speaking engagements um, and then looking for partnerships and referral sources and, and that. But I never measure it. You see, this is the thing about it, and you're, 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 you're way ahead of a lot of other people because you're absolutely right, because all the things you've mentioned, partnerships and business cards and all these things, they all feed into to the sales one eventually. Now, what I would say to you is, I did a session last week on goal setting, totally outside of my exhibition world because I have two separate companies, and I did a session on goal setting, and it's really important that if for any goal you have in life, in business, in life, it doesn't matter what it is, that it's measurable. I'm sure you possibly heard the term smart goals, smart goal yeah. setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for our really, listeners really that haven't, they're specific. Yeah, no, I'll explain to it. Yeah. So it's specific. So the goal is I want to, I want to speak with five people from, uh, from the, Russia, Russian, the Russian training board. Again, just making that up. Measurable. If I didn't speak to five people, therefore I haven't achieved that objective. If I did, I, I have. So it's measurable. It needs to be measurable. So largely speaking, that's sort of saying, well, I'm going to speak to five people. If I speak to four, I haven't hit my number yet. If I speak to six, I've achieved it. So it's got to be measurable. So that's the S specific, the M is measurable. The A is attainable. So it's got to be attainable from the point of view, can you actually, is this attainable or achievable, if you want to call it that, in the time frame involved? So you don't say, for example, I want to talk to 5,000 people at an exhibition, because that's not, it's not attainable because the exhibition is two days long, that's two and a half days. So whatever your goal is, no matter what it is in life, it needs to be attainable, which borders nicely on the next one, which is the or, which it's got to be realistic. So you've, yes, I'm all for challenging goals, but if you set a goal that's, that's not achievable or is unrealistic, you're, you're not going to hit the goal, but you're going to get demotivated very, very quickly. So it's about being challenging, yes, but realistic, definitely. And the last letter is T, which stands for time bound. So... As with any goal in life, there's an old expression that says, um, if I can remember exactly what it was, a goal without a plan is just a wish. Yes. <laughs> and, and, or without, without an action date, plan, action date, whatever you want to go. You need yeah. to have some time to say, I'm going to hit this by the 31st of December or whatever it might be. Because then what you're also doing is you're, you're enabling your brain to say, what do I need to do on certain milestones before that date, obviously? that's going to ensure that I hit the target or the goal. Right. So you're going to a trade show. It's a two day conference. Um, so it's time bound right there because you only have the two days. How many Absolutely. people on average can at a trade show attendee speak with or connect with? I, th- I think it depends on product, but if you take, take the average, say, say a product at a, a very, an industrial trade fair. So we'll talk about something like uh, printing equipment, for example, just as, you know, I know it's quite specific, but if you take something like that, if you speak to, I, I think if you have five meaningful conversations in one day, you'd be doing well. But that's, that's uh, very strong. Okay. Because so the time frame, Wendy, is longer. Now, right. if you go to a marketing show, like which would be more up our street, people like yourself, myself, the type of businesses we operate in, the, the likelihood is that if you speak to five, it's not going to be a great success. I, I, in my world, would want to be speaking to probably maybe 15 people in a day, 10 to 15 people in a day. That would be, at least actually, that would be a success for me because what I have to talk about isn't very technical. Um, it's quite easy to explain. There's no demonstration involved. 
but I do want to get my message across succinctly. But I, more importantly than anything else, for any tra trade fair exhibitor, you want the visitor to walk away and go, I know what they do, I remember what they do, and I know what to do next. Right. So if you go to a marketing trade show, um, you could have lots and lots of conversation. And you have those that you put in your little, you know, we'll go back to physical business cards, and, yeah, and we'll get yeah. to virtual later. Yeah. But you collect that stack of cards. But in those stack of cards, you're hoping that 15 of them were, were people you're going to follow up with, as opposed to 45 people you may have talked to. Yeah, okay, so it's challenge. tracking the, all right, and so then it also makes, because what happens is I just, I don't set a goal, I just say I try to talk to as many people as possible, whether to help them or potential business or partner or opportunity or yeah, whatever, um, but I'm exhausted by the end of the day because oh, I course. never turn Absolutely. off and I never feel like I've done a good job. So if I say, okay, my goal is to have five good conversations, then I take each of those cards and I stick them in the special spot and go, okay, that was one. Okay. You see, the thing about it is, what I would say to you is, and, and I'm not saying you're doing it wrong, but what I would say just as a, as a tweaking of, of how you do it, you go and you're very proactive and you're, you're a very engaging person. So I can imagine you going on and, and doing all of those things that you've said. But unfortunately, if one, not you, if one goes to a trade show and has all these wonderful conversations and you come back with all these wonderful business cards in a box, what you're saying is by putting them all in the one box, you're saying that they're all the same. They're not all the same because you could have 25 conversations in Orlando at a trade fair. Now of the 25, there might be seven that are really hot go, listen, I want to work with rapport. We need to do something together. And it's, they're, 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 they're a leads. If you want to call them that they're really, really interested. Right. But you also in that business card box could have somebody who you, you managed to bump into in, in having a coffee who you spoke to, but isn't really interested. And will never be interested. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Don't get me wrong. Not at all. And it could be a fascinating conversation. I mean, I've 100%. Heard all I always sorts say, of stuff. Yeah. I always say, Wendy, my, one of my, my favorite expressions is no phone call is ever wasted. No. Um, and when I, and I'm, no meeting is ever wasted because you never know who people know. And it's good to be nice to people. And you never know where things come back. But what I am saying is, and from an exhibitor's point of view as well, when you exhibit a trade fair, and if you're using the business card method, for use of a better word, when people walk away, you literally on the spot are going to classify them A, B, C, or D, or whatever way it works right. in your business. Right. So when you come back to the office, you now have a bunch of business cards, yes, or whatever way you collect them, but you've got a bunch of A ones, a bunch of B, C, and D, whatever that might be. But now you know where to start because the A ones are ones who need more immediate attention or more interested or are more realistic potentials for your business. And crudely speaking, that's where we have to start. Um, but I do think it's critical you have a number in mind. I know it's very clinical. No, no, no. It really helps because I do come back afterwards and I think about, okay, who did I say I was going to get right back to and who were the people that I might just push aside because, you know, it was an enjoyable conversation, but uh -huh, our sure. worlds are so different. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is, that's the three before is to set your three objectives and make them smart and one of them is measurable. Make smart objectives. Yeah, one that's a good idea because otherwise you, you, you don't know how to measure yourself. It's really yeah. simple because it's why I say to people three, because if you set one and you don't hit it, it's a failure. Technically speaking, it's a failure. Right. If you set 25, you're setting yourself way too thin and you're, you're, you're going to try too hard to achieve all these things. And it's like doing too much and achieving very little. But when you focus on three separate things, 
you three distinct things within your business. Whether that's staffing, whether it's uh, partnerships, whether it's sales, whether it's appointments for the post show. You're maximizing your opportunity. And right. that's, the, that's the key point. Right. For, and so, you know, get one speaking engagement could be a goal for going to or talk to three people that could lead to a potential speaking engagement, I guess, would be more realistic. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be flexible to some extent in that if, you, if, you've, if you've had, if you're looking to, to have seven meaningful conversations and you've had five meaningful conversations and 10 semi-meaningful conversations, that's still a result. Right. But I just think that we, we need to be clearer on what we do because like I said earlier on, exhibiting is incredibly expensive if you do it wrong. And it's very important, particularly post-COVID, it's going to be very important because as I always say to people, I say, I'm a sales trainer as well and I was training a sales team last night of 28 people. And I said to them, we've got to face the reality, guys. After COVID, it, there's going to be less money in the economy. There's going to be less buyers in the economy. And it's going to be very, very challenging economic times. Now, why I'm saying the negative things, and it's a very specific reason. It doesn't mean people aren't buying. Lots of people are still buying. Many businesses are doing really, really well during COVID. But right. what it does mean is we need to be better prepared in the future. We need to be better focused on our clients' needs, not our own needs. And that comes back to my setting the objectives because for me, it's about, it's a client focused market, not a supplier focused market right now. Right. And we'll continue to be that way. So people will buy what they'll buy from people who are better prepared. So we all need to up our game. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. No, no, it's not. Okay. So moving down our list of Triska decophobia, we've oh, done yeah. three. <laughs> We're moving yeah. into four now. So you do your three objectives before four. you go. You go into Before the next four. Okay. What's four now, now? Number four. Number four relates to, as an exhibitor at an exhibition, remembering what you need to do to engage your visitors. So let me give you an example. When, an, when a trade show visitor, when a visitor to a trade show walks down the aisle of the exhibition, center of the exhibition or whatever uh, aisles there are in the exhibition, uh, they will decide within four seconds if they're going to stop on your stand. That's, that's been proven, by the way. So, as they walk down this, this empty aisle or full aisle, whatever it might be, they, they will decide within those four seconds if, if I'm going to stop at Rapport International Stand. Mm -hmm. if, they, if I don't stop, that's not a great success for your business because you haven't stopped, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is we need to um, um, educate the exhibitor, anyone who's on this call and might be exhibiting or who's listening in might be exhibiting, that it's really important that we, we maximize those four seconds. Now, how do we do that? By not all, looking at your computer while you're sitting at the booth. <laughs> you, just, I mean, you see, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. And it, and it's it's kind of funny. biggest pet peeves. <laughs> it's just, but you see, think about it, Wendy. I wouldn't be in business if everyone was doing it right, so I'm delighted they're doing it wrong. But yes, let me explain. Yes. You can always tell an owner-operator business, as in somebody who's exhibiting a trade show, who has a vested interest in that business, Mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody who has been sent or is an employee of that business. Because the employee would be there looking at the newspaper, he'd be texting his mates, having a coffee, eating lunch, sitting down. Yeah. Now that, you can't, it's like, it's like I always say, when I had my daughter 13, 14 years ago, someone said to me, if you want to have a conversation with your daughter or your son, my son's 18 now, but you want, when they were three and four, so if you want to have a conversation with them and you want them to take you seriously what you're saying, you, ne you kneel down so you're at eye level with them. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean? He said, because if you're, if you're standing up, this is a silly example, but it's really relevant, actually. Yeah. If I'm, and I'm not tall, but as a four-year-old, I'm standing towering way above my daughter, and I'm telling her what to do, so I'm talking down to her. Mm -hmm. Now, if you talk to somebody on the same level, 
you're on the same level. Right. I hope that makes that part makes sense. Now, Absolutely. Let's, let's transfer the, my problem transfer is now to, my teenagers are six two and <laughs> six three, so I'm pulling them down to my eye level. <laughs> but go now ahead. It's, now yes. it's a slightly what different. Makes sense, and I've heard that before. Is you want to be on eye level with somebody. Now, when it comes to engaging with, tra with trade show visitors uh, at, tra at trade shows, you don't do it sitting down, reading the newspaper, when you're looking up, because it just doesn't work. And right. what I'm saying to people is, ditch the furniture. They go, why would I ditch the furniture? Get the furniture off the stand so you have to stand. Because when you stand, you move. When you move, you're more engaging. And right. when you're off the stand and you're smiling and somebody's coming up the aisle, they're more likely to stop. Now, I'm yes. not saying they're a big cheesy grin, but being open and having open body language. So it's really important that we, we think about those four seconds. And it's not just about our people. It's also about, uh, more specifically, about the stand itself or the boot, as they call it in the States. We call them stands in Europe. Hmm. Um, same thing. But effectively, what you have to do is your message, what you're saying on your stand should be visible and readable from 15 to 20 feet away. Because that's what, people, that's what catches people's eyes. So if you do the most amazing pink widgets in the world at the cheapest prices, you tell people you do the most amazing pink widgets at the cheapest prices. And people know what you do. It gives them a reason to stop. Secondly, what you have to think about is most companies who exhibit at trade shows, because exhibiting is expensive, will bring every single thing in the can from the factory or the shop and put it on stand, shove it on as much as possible because they want to maximize every single product they have. Now, what happens is someone walks down the aisle and goes, uh-oh, couldn't go near that. It's like an obstacle course, can't get in, don't know how to walk into the stand. So people will walk on. 60% of your floor space should be free for people walking onto the stand because that's what makes it comfortable. Now, if they're comfortable walking on the stand, you can engage with them. Now, with that also, as a by the by, uh, so that's your four seconds to make an impression because you want them to stop using good people. Your stand needs to be clear and defined and it doesn't need to be cluttered. But when it comes to the actual engaging, the worst question, and I, it, I see it, I'm sure everyone sees it, when you go to an exhibition, an exhibitor will say to a visitor, can I help you? <laughs> it's the worst question in the world because you know why? What are they going to say? No. No, just exactly. looking. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So what I'm saying to people is, with regard to engagement, we put three letters in front of that sentence to make a big difference. So we say, how can I help you? And people go, that's so ridiculously simple. Try it. It absolutely works. It totally changes the dynamic of the conversation. Because as with all sales, whether that's in an exhibition hall or anywhere else, you can't sell effectively if you don't know what the person's problems or issues are. And you can't know what their issues are if you're talking all the time. You need to let them talk. So it's about building relationships uh, and asking good questions and being interested. People come to exhibitions to buy products and services. They don't come to be sold at. So it's really right. simple. So the four is really important. Okay. So number one is be visible and readable from 15. Why don't you restate them? Yeah, yeah, no worries. Okay. So the first one is be, be not in any particular order, but your, your, your message, what, what, what your company does and what it says about your company should be readable and visible from 15 to 20 feet away. Okay. In other words, it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have every fax number, or email address, because people don't read that. No. Uh, so keep it nice and simple. Secondly, your people need to be incredibly engaging, standing, not sitting down, open body language, and, and just be friendly and, and, and not, not stalking people on the side of an exhibition uh, booth. You're actually engaging with people and asking them, how can I help you? Good, easy questions. And lastly, 
60% of your floor space should be free, as in with nothing on it, for visitor access to make it comfortable to them to walk on the stand. When you do that, you maximize your chances of people stopping. And that's exactly where they're in the first place. So that's number four. Okay, so visible and readable. Limit stuff, make sure you have 60% free space. Good people that are engaging, open, and friendly. Yeah. And what was number four? Well, it's kind of connected. I think was it's connected to was the uh, how can I help you asking good how questions. How can I help you? Okay. Yeah. I wanted to make sure. Okay, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. All right. So now we are up to number seven on Triscodecophobia. Now take me to, to the last six. Okay, the number six. This is the scary piece. Now, this is the scary piece. In the exhibition world, 81%, I'm going to repeat, the 81% of leads from trade shows are never followed up. That's a fact, by the way. Ouch. Now, what happens is, and, and, and I understand why this happens. You, 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 let's say you live in California and you're exhibiting in Utah or wherever. Mm-hmm. You travel the distance. You've got to build up the boots, the stand, whatever you want to call it, for a couple of days. You do the show. It's been tough, a lot of work involved. You take the stand down. It could be the best part of a week between when you left the office and when you come back to the office in a lot of cases. So what happens is, Wendy comes back to the office after a week in Boston or whatever, after a trade show, and Wendy catches up with all the things that happened when Wendy was away in Rapport International. Mm-hmm. Wendy says, okay, I'm going to chase these leads tomorrow because I've got to catch up with these emails with these meetings that happened when I was away. Invariably, what happens is those leads tomorrow are put off till the follow till the next day, which is another tomorrow. And they get keep pushed out because people are busy back doing what they were doing before the trade show. Now, what happens is a couple of things happen. The first thing is the leads get pushed out by more than a week. They don't become as interesting as they were when you leave in the trade show hall because they seemed really hot then. Now they're just, you know, their leads are business cards. They don't really mean a huge amount. And they don't get chased up. And what happens is the exhibitor, or sorry, the visitor who was on your stand forgets about you, goes to a competitor, or becomes disinterested for whatever reason. Oh, they forget Now the you. exhibitor, exactly. The exhibitor now goes six months later and goes, oh God, I never chased those leads. I better start doing that now. And he rings all the people or contacts all the people and they go, who are you? And they, they've forgotten all about him. And he's got to start selling all over again. They've either bought somewhere else or they're not interested in it. Now, what I'm saying to people is, it, that, that's, that 81% is the true fact, by the way. What I'm saying to people is, we need to focus on the reason we went there in the first place. We went there to get leads, but we also went there to do something with those leads. It's like saying to somebody, you're going to go out and buy a really nice car in a, and spend loads of money on it, and then you're not going to drive it. It doesn't make sense. Right. When we come right. to exhibiting, you pay all this money, you don't get the response because you don't have people flooding your, your, your front door with money and buying dollars coming through the front door. So you think, oh, the trade show was a waste of time and you blame the organizer. And I see this time and time again where clients of mine will say, oh, show was a complete disaster. I said, well, how many inquiries did you get? They said, well, 125. So, well, how many of them did you chase up? And they kind of look at me blankly. So, well, you can't blame the exhibition organizer who don't chase up the leads. So what I'm saying to companies is, very important that we prioritize and focus on what we call a back at office show day. So the first day you come back from the uh, event, exhibition, whatever it is, all you're doing is focusing and getting those leads either delegated or followed up. Now, there's two stats on this. The optimum amount of time that you should be chasing up every lead from a trade show is six days. Now, that's not to say that you're going to get sales within six days. I'm not saying that at all. 
but to, to maintain that contact, you need to be do, not leaving it any longer than six days. Now, people say to me, oh, I have too many leads. I can't chase them all up in six days. That's great. Nice complaint. What you need to be then doing is you need to be saying, well, okay, it needs to be emailed within 48 hours to say, listen, I'm going to be in touch at the end of next week or, or at the start of February or whatever, whatever, whatever the dates are. Well, you need to keep people in the loop as to what, what, what's happening next. Because otherwise the leads become diluted, diluted, diluted and then they're just in, they just don't work. And then people blame the exhibition organizers. So that's the number six, six days to chase up every lead. Okay. All right. So you were talking about your, your, as the exhibitionist coming, not exhibitionist, exhibitor. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, absolutely. wrong choice of word. That's quite okay. That's quite okay. <laughs> I've been called worse in my life. That's quite okay. <laughs> so as the exhibitor, you come back and you have six days to follow up with them. Now, one thing I've tried to do is follow up within the first 48 hours, and sometimes it'll stretch out a little bit more. But I also notice people are really busy coming back from the show, and they might not get back to me. So where, yeah. where is that sweet time where you find where people are they're still engaged but not so busy following up with their stuff? I think you've just hit the nail on the head, Wendy. I think, for, I think the 48 hours after the show is not a great time to follow up for the very reason that you've just said. You're absolutely right. For me, the, the sweet spot is <clears throat> from 48 hours to six days. So it's give them, a, give them a day or two to get back in and then chase it up. So the real sweet spot is day three, four, five, and six, actually. They're the key days. Now, I'm not saying you can't chase them up the following day, but I don't think, I don't think a lot of people are busy, as you say. So for me, the sweet spot days would be day three, four, five, and six. That's fantastic, because you're right. You get people that are back. They've kind of cleaned up email a little bit. Their feet are back on the mm -hmm. ground. Maybe they're adjusted back to the time zone. Maybe not yet. Yeah. But then they can see it and respond to it. All right. That's fabulous yeah. advice. So now yeah, you it's, got... It's nice and simple. Three objectives beforehand. The four things to think about doing while you're at the booth, and then follow yep. up within six days. And you're no longer yeah, I mean, afraid. You see, this is the thing about it. Like, like my, my business, is, uh, one part of my business focuses around the seven steps to exhibition success. And obviously those three will feature among the seven things. But for, for me, what it is, is actually sitting down with a client and saying, what do you want to achieve by the objective? So it's, or it's already one, what are your objectives you want to achieve by exhibiting? And looking down at the, the final piece, where, like what's the vision? Where do, you, where do you see this working? Or why do you want to achieve that? And then everything in the middle comes as a direct result from the start and the end, if that makes sense. Um, and for me, it's about understanding the world of exhibitions, understanding that it, always, it doesn't always go perfectly right, but it doesn't need to. You just need to do the right things right, not lots of things right. Uh, and I think it, it's like when I see people taking these amazing, huge, ridiculously big boots at exhibitions. And they, like a lot of them don't need that. Now, yeah. I, I understand the salesperson's job, but for me, it's, it's about, I would prefer to have a client who will exhibit on a small scale with me every year than somebody who takes a really big boot one year and never again. Right. We've got to grow with our exhibitors because we, we as an industry lose between 40 and 50% of our clients every year. That's double That's what the average high. It is, but there were t and it's crazy a lack of retention, Wendy, because if you think about it, if I was to really simplify it, let's say you had an event that has 100 exhibitors, just to make the figures easy. Yeah. 60% uh, of them will come back. At best case scenario, 60 will come back. That's fine. 
you're now left with 40 who don't come back, 40 companies. Of the 40 companies, half them, 50%, or in this case, 20 companies, were never coming back. And that's fine. We always get that. But the other 20 or the other 50% who exhibited badly and who didn't get a response and are wondering why, we as salespeople in, in, in the exhibition world need to educate our clients how they can maximize success because it's really fundamental. If a company does well in an exhibition, they'll come back. And if you're as a salesperson, we'll educate them and say, these are the key things you need to do to be successful. And they do those things. And I know it's a big if they do those things. You're maximizing their success, but you're also maximizing your own success. So I think it's really important that we do that. And I think in today's environment, we need to educate people. It's not, a, it's not done in a patronizing way. It's done in a way that actually is genuine care for our clients. So come COVID, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And everything shuts down. So we're, we've been talking a lot about going to exhibits in person. Now yeah. they've gone online, and I know you've made a switch and can help companies with that because yeah. a lot of the same philosophies or you know, strategies would help. Yeah. Yet as an exhibitor, I'm not collecting cards. So I sit there and I connect with people on LinkedIn. Or even if I'm at a conference and I connect with them on LinkedIn, what are the follow-up? So first talk about what's happening in the virtual world. And then when you're following up virtually, any good suggestions on how you keep that information separated? Because that's yeah. what I'm still struggling with. If I don't collect cards, I can't sort them as easily. And then I'm not as much in a flow. So I, I no, that makes dropped a lot sense. on you. So <laughs> no, 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 makes take sense. It. The, vir- the virtual world is a very different place. Now, the, like, it's like I always say, like, there's always been a virtual element to events in some shape or form. It's called digital. They call it digital. But I suppose where, where our worlds collided were, was that up to COVID, exhibitions were number one and we were better than everybody else. And that was great. And you face to face and it's brilliant. And I still, I still agree with that, by the way. But my point is, COVID hit and the, uh, the whole world turned upside down, not, not just the exhibition industry. But the exhibition industry, as, as a particular industry, suffered very badly because obviously our main focus was face-to-face and we can't do that anymore, so we're now, we're now in the virtual environment. Now, I'm not a massive fan of virtual overall, but I'm warming to a lot. And I also do understand that it has some unique benefits that live mm-hmm. events don't have. Uh, and that's a good thing, by the way. But the way I describe it to people is, up to covid we were always fighting against digital as an industry. We were saying, well, we're much better than you. You're much better. And we used to fight against each other. And the way I would describe it to me, to people is, I would say virtual and stroke digital and live are on, going in the same direction, but we're on different uh, motorways or roads, whatever you want to call it. Now we need to be, because we're going, going in the same direction, we need to be on the same roads traveling in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Because... The best way I can describe it to you is two plus two equals five. So if we work very well with digital, we can create a much better offer for everybody. And right. on the client side, exhibitor side, we're offering them the opportunity of not having just three days in the Javits Center in New York. We're offering them actually three days in the Javits Center and also two weeks online as well. So the, the visitor from Sydney who couldn't get to the Javits Center because of the long, long distance and COVID can now go online to the hybrid event or the, the virtual event and pick up and learn lots from that. Is it as good? No, not in my opinion, but it still increases the value of the event. And it's fine for learning because you can go on and pick up what you want to learn, yet the difficulty is the lost networking. Yes, So what are you seeing there? I'm I'm seeing that that more and more people are looking at 
different ways of networking. Traditional networking at live events was very much, you, you have a, a, a free bar or you have a coffee area and everyone goes to hear a bit of jazz music or whatever, and everyone is in one room and it's great. You can't do that in the virtual world because there's too many outs for people to turn the camera off, to walk away from the computer, or to be scared by the amount of people in, in a virtual room. Because there's definitely a fear with that. So the way I believe virtual networking is working now is it's, it's much more, um, what's it, matchmaking focused and AI focused. That we're bringing less people into the networking room, breakout room, whatever you want to call it, but you're bringing more focused people in there and you're bringing in a moderator who knows a few of the people who can get that interaction going. Mm. Because see, when you're at a live networking event, you can smile at somebody, you can tip your glass at somebody. There's this different dynamic. You can't do that in the virtual environment. It's very difficult to do that. I went to a virtual, virtual conference and they had it set up so you could invite somebody into a room to talk with you one-on-one. So I thought, oh, I'll try it. And I found a woman who looked interesting with what she did. And I invited her in and she, yeah. you know, it was still early on in the, the day and she came up on camera. She's like, hi, how did you get me? So we ended up having like a five, 10 minute conversation, decided to follow up afterwards. And I did it with a couple other people who were just so surprised. And I, I was curious about the technology and how that worked, but it was very, it was kind of like a smile and walking up to somebody, you know, but you have you see, to be that's willing okay, to one take... to one. You yeah. just hit the nail on the head. Because you see, you're, you might be more extrovert than the next person. Some oh, people, I'm off the scale extrovert, so I'm willing see, to try and play won't. around. Yeah, yeah. Wait, and I think the fear is that, that you've got, I don't think one thing I, I presented for a big exhibition think tank the other day, and one thing I think people fear is we haven't quite found the sweet spot for networking as in what amount of people in the room works. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, the breakout room situation. Now, it's like I, I say to people, when you're exhibiting on a virtual event, it's very, very different focus. Because when you're, when you're on a live event, the focus is on your product, is on your booth, is on your people, and that's, that's great, and that's really important. In a virtual environment, it's very much more content-driven. Because obviously that's what people are coming to see, is the content. Because it's not coming to see the virtual booth, really. Because all that is is a moving website, in my, in my estimation. Right. So I think if you're, if you're exhibiting at a virtual event, you need to not invest your time in having the most amazing virtual booth, although I'm not saying it's not relevant, but it would be better to have a more, a more amazing speaker who's going to draw an audience to get them engaged with what you're talking about, much more so than how big your stand-stroke booth is. Um, because that doesn't matter in the virtual world, really. But that, okay, so can you draw people to your booth with a speaker? I haven't seen that yet. It's, you can. Oh yeah, absolutely. And if okay. you take if you take things like maybe not Clubhouse, Clubhouse is probably not a great example of it, but so, some kind of social media platform that's pulling people, giving them teaser content. This is who's going to be speaking on our on our, on our boot. This is a ten minute presentation, which is another important part about virtual. Is the presentations need to be much much shorter, right? Uh, because it's much harder to keep that engagement. I mean, I I do what I do three hour training sessions in sales and marketing, and it's incredibly difficult to keep people engaged mm-hmm. now i would be a reasonably good trainer but my point is i've got to introduce polls i've got to introduce breakout rooms i've got to give a bit of fun games in the middle to keep people engaged right and when you do that and say 
And actually, the best thing, Wendy, is to say to people, listen, this is only a short presentation of 10 minutes because we want to give you the key nuggets of information. Mm-hmm. But here's a link if you want further. That's a better way of doing it because it's content-driven in, in the virtual environment. It's not, I don't think, as much as my colleagues would disagree with me, it's not, sale, it's not as much sales focus because it's hard to do the hard sell in, in, in real life. Doing it in virtual is even harder. Well, and that's the whole switch of sales. It used to be that the salesperson had all the information. Now people are reaching out to the company once they've done all their research and they're actually at the buying stage. So I think that's the same thing is I want to go and get a lot of information and then I'm going to come to you. So it's all that inbound marketing that needs to happen. Yeah. It is because what you're ultimately trying to do is like if you take the positives from virtual in in all reality the the uh, investment tracking or tracking of how uh, exhibitors uh, return from, um, return investment tracking from virtual is actually technically easier in virtual than it is in live because a lot of it's, yes. it's data analytics and things like that and that's a good thing yeah. by the way that's 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 a positive side to it and I think what we've got to do is we have to embrace the technology the way I would describe it is I always consider virtual is the icebreaker and live is the closer. And what I mean by that is, if you, if you take me as an example, social media, I, I, 95% of my business comes from LinkedIn. So I will connect with somebody in LinkedIn. Great, and in the exhibition world. And then I will try and meet them, normally meet them in London or whatever. But when I meet them in London after having connected with them on LinkedIn, I'm already one step ahead because I've actually had some level of conversation. Right. So I, I'm over the first hump. In virtual, it's very much the same. We should be, because we will go back to live events, by the way, because it's not because I specifically want it, although I do. The clients want it. I talk to exhibitors all day, every day. They can't wait to get back to live events because they know that's for real businesses are done. So for me, it's an icebreaker in virtual and a closer in live. Which is interesting because we do a lot of um, inbound marketing online and we've had a better year this year and been more efficient than doing the live stuff. Wow, that's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. It's, I mean, so it's, at the end of the day, I suppose it depends on the market, but you know, market, that's great industry, culture. No, okay, because now we're now, now we got to jump in. I mean, there's so many different ways. I wanted to talk about Clubhouse, but we'll put that on hold because I'm a fan. I hold a, a global business room on Friday mornings, 9 a.m. Yeah. East Coast time. So I think it would be two yeah. o'clock your time. Um, yeah. But I want to get into now culture because we're talking about events. So let's talk about culture. You're doing trade shows all over the world. You're working with people all over the world. How does culture come into trade shows? Country culture. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, there's a big difference. I mean, the culture, the selling environment as a starting point in, in a lot of different countries is very different. Um, I mean, if you take Saudi, Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, Saudi Arabia is a very, really good example of you have to have about 16 conversations before you get into a sales conversation with somebody in Saudi. Now, I'm not generalizing. It, it tends to be the culture that their lead time with, with, with companies tends to be much longer. You talk there's, all, about, there's all sorts of research that shows that too, that supports it. Yeah. 100%. And you've got, yeah. you've got to build, like it's more about them building a relationship, learning about your family and learning about you as an individual. And that's great. Listen, every, every culture is different. Mm-hmm. Now, if you talk about India, I do a bit of training in India. It's a complete opposite. I'm not saying they're not interested in family and stuff, but they go straight in for the sale, end up, and they don't, and, and they would expect that I would do the same. I mean, I trained 50 people in Mumbai uh, before COVID. I went to Mumbai and trained 50 people on how to use LinkedIn. 
and their attitude towards LinkedIn is wildly different than mine. They just go for the kill, literally, excuse the expression, but they just go in for the sales straight away. Whereas that just doesn't work in Europe to do, adopt that approach. Now, I'm not saying their way is wrong, by the way. Right, it's wrong for a European perspective. But everyone is very, very different the way they sell. When it comes to trade shows, it's very much the same. And I think the challenge is, if you're an Irish company exhibiting in Saudi and you don't understand that, you probably get very frustrated by the whole, the length of time it takes between meeting somebody and actually signing an order with them. But you have to adapt to that culture. You have to understand that it's a longer term process. You have to start earlier or else accept that it's going to take longer. Uh, and that's a really important part of trade shows because a lot of companies, because the world technically is so small now, will, are, are, are exhibiting at different parts of the world. But it, you can't just do the same thing in a different country and expect it to work in every country because everyone is different. That's what the whole word culture means. I mean, I find the European culture, like even in Europe, uh, Eastern Europe and Western Europe, very, very different in terms of the way we sell and very different in terms of our approach. In Western Europe, which I'm talking about, say, Ireland, the UK, France, Spain, we, we tend to be a little, we talk a little bit more, it takes a little bit longer for decisions. Uh, we talk around things a little bit. You go to Eastern Europe, you go to Poland, you go to, uh, go to countries, Croatia, Dubrovnik, and places further afield, further west or east. They're much more direct in their approach. And we find that in Europe quite difficult to deal with sometimes because we're very jovial in Ireland. I'm not saying not jovial in, in Eastern Europe, but they're very direct and they come across as very direct. And you have to understand that, that that's just the way they're brought up. People are brought up in that culture. But if you want to adapt and, and work in other, in other businesses or other countries, you have to understand that those cultures exist, that you should respect theirs, but they should also respect yours. And that can be difficult for companies. Really difficult. I mean, you see that more than I do. I mean, you're, you're dealing with lots of different languages and things like different countries. So, Yeah. Oh, yeah. And language is so influenced by culture. So people yeah. do have to take that into account. So now I'm curious about languages. When you're at trade shows where people don't speak the language, what, how have you seen that handled? Yeah, that is, that's quite difficult. Now, I mean, if there is such a thing as the international trade show language, it would be English. And it does. I mean, I've been at trade shows in, in, in foreign countries where they speak English and you're going to go, how come they're speaking English? It's just because it's the international language of trade shows. But it, it, it is a big, big challenge. If you go to France, for example, particularly in Paris, they don't like to speak English. Even though they can't speak English, they don't like to speak English. And, and, and they're perfectly within their rights. They're in their own country. Mm -hmm. So that can be a challenge. And you either you have to adapt to that challenge, and, and and it's not an easy one to get around. I mean, I've seen people bring interpreters with them to trade shows. If that's what you have to do, that's what you have to do. If you're if that market is that important to you, you'll do it, and it's worth your while doing it. And are the trade shows providing interpreters for the sessions? Uh, some do, yep, some do. Uh, in fact, quite a few of them do. The bigger shows, like I'm, thinking, I'm trying to think of an example of, um, of one, say a big one in, in say Batimat, which is a big uh, one in, in still there in, in France, big construction show. They would certainly have translators on site uh, because they understand that their audience is 95% from different countries. So like, if they want this, this show to be a success, it has to be a success for all stakeholders. Because in our industry, funny enough, um, Wendy, it's always been this, we look after the exhibitors, we look after the sponsors because they're the people giving us the money. But ironically, the most important person in the equation is actually the visitor. 
who comes to the trade show because if they're happy and buying, then the exhibitor is happy. So as organizers, we need to be aware that, that if we can help a visitor to forge a stronger relationship by having a, a translator there, that's going to result in more business, then we've got to do it. Right. And I'm surprised in the, particularly in the United States, the number of large trade shows that don't even think about that, even if they're bringing in international visitors. And so it's, it just doesn't seem on their radar. Um, so it's disappointing. So I'm glad to hear that it happens more over in Europe. It does, but I think, I think this, this is a bit of a selfish thing that we all in the English speaking world have that English is the only language. Um, I mean, ironically, Spanish is, is, is more widely spoken. Chinese is obviously more mm-hmm. widely spoken than English. But I think in the English-speaking language of all the English-speaking countries, we just assume that it's the only language that's out there. And that's not the right thing to do, by the way. Yeah, we have blogs and videos and a chapter in my book about how English is not the global language and that people are much more apt to buy and will spend more money if information is in their in their native language so do you see well, exhibitors? I transferred my linkedin profile to, i transferred my linkedin profile into arabic good for my, you I, 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 no i didn't personally do it because i don't speak arabic but what i'm what yeah. i'm saying is there is an option on linkedin to, yeah. to have your profile in another language now mo- most of what i'm the business i'm trying to do is in that region or a lot of the business i'd like to go is that so i transferred it into arabic now whether it's going to make a massive difference i don't know but it only needs to make a difference with one person to be worthwhile because it's a press of button. So I think we have to open our eyes to the fact that just because we speak English doesn't mean that everybody else does. Did you hire a person to do the translation or did you literally push the button and get the LinkedIn? Uh, the I took automated? the lazy way out, Wendy. No, I took the lazy way out and I pressed the button. Okay. Well, we have a... <laughs> Yeah, I, I laugh because somebody went to a present at a conference and they decided to do that. So they trans, I think it was into Swedish, they translated their profile. Oh, no. And he yeah. spoke and a bunch of people came up afterwards and they were all correcting him on how his LinkedIn profile was incorrect. So it made a really oh. bad impression rather than good. So if I've got to keep have, an eye on that. Yeah. Yeah, we can review it for you. Well, or translate it for you because usually even a review isn't good or find somebody that you know that's in there. But we have a whole podcast episode with uh, a specialist on LinkedIn where we're talking about some of those subtleties back and forth about about doing it. Yeah, yeah. You get it wrong. Like you say the wrong thing, even though you don't believe it to be the wrong thing. It could be just misinterpreted in a different country and you get yourself in a whole heap of trouble now. So you have to be careful. Yeah, you really, you really do. And so if it's something that you're putting out there outward facing, you want to make sure yeah. that it is accurate. Yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah All right. So how did you get into international trade shows? Yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's an interesting story. I mean, I, was, I, I, I started my career in Yellow Pages 30 years ago, um, selling advertising for Yellow Pages, and I spent uh. five years there. But yeah. But what happened was I was at a bit of a loss because I, 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 I didn't know what to do. The, the company I was working for relocated and I didn't want to move. So anyway, I decided I'd leave. So I wasn't really sure. I was quite young at the time. I was making plenty of money. And uh, my brother-in-law said to me, oh, there's a job going in some exhibition company. might get you over three months until you decide what you want to do. And I kind of went, well, exhibition, what's, what's that? what does that mean exactly? And I didn't know. And I met the guy who, the MD of the company, and I didn't know what it was. I just clicked him straight away. He, was just, he just struck me as somebody I'd really like to work for. Um, so I did my research, due diligence, whatever, and I found out it was a family business. And, and I spoke to a few people and I said, listen, this guy is ace. He's the best in the trade show business in Ireland or UK, whatever. So 
I went to him and he was offering me a lot less money than I would normally make. But he said, listen, I'm going to make you a promise. If you deliver what you say you'll do in six months, I will triple your salary and give you everything you want. So I kind of just, I sat down. I remember, I never forget my very first day, Wendy. What happened was, it was the 4th of December, I think it was 2000, or sorry, 1993 or 94, I can't remember what it was. And I remember walking in the door of the office and my manager at the time said to me, she said, uh, okay, this is an exhibition floor plan with all the boxes on it of the things you're selling. And she said, I'm going to Australia. I said, oh, okay. okay. When are you going to Australia? And she said, uh, and she looked at her watch, uh, now. So that was my training was literally, <laughs> I was about four seconds. Now I'd come off the back of, I'd come off the back of, uh, in Yellow Pages, where you, we used to do two weeks intensive solid sales training every year, we'd go out to a hotel, 60, 70 salespeople, and it was great fun, but it would be very intense. To there is an exhibition floor plan, I'm going to Australia. So she left literally within four minutes of me walking in the door, she was gone. And I'm looking at this going, What am I going to do? I, I had no idea what square meters were, or the, the exhibition was, and whatever. So I picked up the list, and at the time there was no mobile phones, it was a long, long time back or there was no internet, and I rang, well, maybe not, maybe there was internet, I can't remember, um, and I rang this company, the very first name on, on the company, I went, oh, Jesus, I don't, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> so I told the name of the show, and the lady at the other end of the phone said, oh, yeah, I really want to exhibit at that show. Like, she'd obviously heard it from somebody else. So my very first phone call was a sale. <laughs> I mean, it was a complete fluke. But I don't know, literally... I put down the phone and said, oh, I'm a genius. I'm, I'm obviously really good at this. <laughs> and I don't know what it was, but from that day, literally that moment, I said to myself, I'm home. I love this. This is just me completely. And I think if, if I was to look at it honestly, um, well, sorry, what happened after that was I managed, uh, I was working for myself in the company, and then I managed a team of about eight or nine salespeople as we grew and we became the biggest in Ireland. And, it, and I just loved it. But what I love about exhibitions was quite similar to Yellow Pages was you're working with very, very different types of companies. You're selling very different types of products, depending on ad size or exhibitions and whatever. And I love that adaptability of, of having two very, very different conversations within the space of half an hour. And I, I, I'm a good adapter to people. So I just, I said, when I sat down, I went, you know what, I love, I'm home here. And, mm -hmm. I, and I stayed there for 12, nearly 13 years, actually, in that company. Small family business. And they were basically, um, my MD, my boss, sorry, was the MD's son. So it was very, very small family business. I got paid loads of money. I really loved it. But I couldn't go any further in, the, in that company because the MD's son was my boss. Lovely guy. Got on, I still got on great. In fact, I trained him now, as it turns out, ironically. Um, and I decided to leave and set up my own exhibition company, which I did for five years. Uh, five years were very good. The sixth year was a disaster. I lost a lot of money. And I invested a lot of money in one show. Everyone said, don't do it. And I did it and it didn't work. And I lost a fortune and the company went under. So I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So I freelanced uh, selling exhibitions internationally. And I said, I still love this industry. I want to stay in it. Right. But getting a bit older, I don't really want to be at the cold face selling exhibition boots, stands all day, every day like I was. Because I'm doing it for 25 years now at this stage. So I decided I, I love training. I love people. I love the industry. Uh, and people aren't doing it right. So there's got to be an avenue here. And when I set up the exhibition guy, the traction just went off the planet. It was, it was fantastic. People got to love what you do, really interested in hearing more. So I'm really lucky as somebody who can travel, who can work in an industry I absolutely adore, uh, very passionate about what I do. I mean, I have bad days too. But I really enjoy 
what I do and there's no end to customers because lots of people are doing it wrong. Um, and that one little small thing that I can say to an exhibitor that he goes, geez, that was great. That really worked for me. That that's, that's makes it for me to be honest. So oh, that's for me, it's, it's about passion. It is. Yeah, okay. And that really interesting comes- right up to here. Yeah. And it's so nice because even when you were go, have gone virtual, you can still do what you're doing because it's all about sales training and connecting and being with that person. So it's just yeah. wonderful to see your success in that area. All right. So, so now some uh, personal questions. You know, this one's coming. Yeah. What's your yeah, favorite think- foreign word? <laughs> I was trying to think about this because I have a few, but I, I mean, my love is Thailand. My, my love is Thailand, Thailand as a country. But my, one of my favorite expressions is wabi-sabi. <laughs> What's that mean? Remember, it's wabi, wabi-sabi is a Japanese term. I had to write these down because there's three of them, actually. Um, wabi-sabi means beauty that's imper- imperfect. So for me, what I love oh. about that is I, 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 one of the things I don't like about myself is I'm a perfectionist. I find it really mm. difficult to get out of this perfectionist mode because I actually hate being a perfectionist. I don't like it. But for me, I need to learn to be not quite as perfect. I'm not saying I am perfect, but I, right, right, right. I need to learn not to be so imperfect. So Wabi Sabi struck me as, as you can be really, really good, but you don't have to be perfect. So that's why I thought of Wabi Sabi is my favorite term. That's, it's interesting in the um, Native American culture in the United States, there, it, there's a value in homemade things which aren't going to be um, you know, mass produced or they're made with love. And so oftentimes yeah. they'll, they'll put an actual mistake in that to show that it was made perfectly yeah. in there. So it kind of, you know, I'm probably not explaining that well. I just know the concept. No, I know exactly what you I mean. wonder if there's a word for it in some of the native yeah, languages. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's just because I, I came across that. I mean, I came across a long time ago and I just thought, you know what, it kind of sums up where I like to be right now. It's a good word. And yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of just because I, I, only, I only started journaling this morning, actually. I used to do it years ago. But what made me think about it was it's like I try, you try to be all this perfect person and you're just trying too hard sometimes. And it's time to maybe step back and go, you know what? Life is not perfect. It's like when I hit 50. I'm 52 now. I remember my 50th birthday. I don't know what it was. Like a switch in my head went, you know what? I don't really care what people think about me anymore. As <laughs> you know. No, but you get to the point where it's, you know, people, certain, certain people don't like me. I mean, I think I told you the story the last time really quickly. I was in a coffee shop near where I live, actually, and I had a hoodie with, that says the exhibition guy on the back of it. Um, and I bought it for half nothing, but it's, uh, I like it. And this guy taps me on the shoulder and he says, oh, you're that guy from LinkedIn who's always posting stuff about exhibitions. Hey, yeah. And I was expecting him to say, I really like your stuff. And he turns around and says to me, he says, I don't like your, I don't like your stuff. I, I'm kind of looking at him. I'm kind of laughing Ouch. at that. But why do you why, why why do you follow me then if you don't like my stuff? I don't. That's the piece I don't get. He said, "Oh, I like some of your stuff." <laughs> I kind of think of myself. You know what? You can never win, but you know, I got a little bit of amusement. My old self, Wendy, would have got really would have been quite annoyed by that. Right, my new right. self, north of fifty, two years ago, goes. You know what? Actually, that's fun because you obviously like something I do. So that's a win. And I've always been recognized as well. So listen. Well, that's, that's what marketing's all about, right? Being remembered. No, no such thing as bad publicity. Maybe right. right. <laughs> that's the, the, the vein <laughs> I was going on. The other one I thought of is for you specifically is a term called Yoko Meshi. Yoko Meshi? What's that? Yoko, Yoko Meshi. Yoko Meshi is the, stra- the stress of speaking a foreign language. I that love that one. I've never you. heard that. Yoko what, Meshi. 
Japanese? That's Japanese. Yeah. Y-O-K-O. M-E-S-H-I. Yoko Meshi. So that was my, um, the stress of speaking foreign language. And that one is specifically for you, by the way. I love it. That's become my new favorite word today. There I didn't go. even know there, there was something like that. Yoko Meshi. <laughs> there you are. I have to come up with someone for you for today. Oh, that's great. That is great. All right. And what about your m- most rewarding cross-cultural experience? It's got, I don't know whether I'd call it an experience, but it, let me give you an example. There's a thing in our, well, sorry, there's a thing in Europe. It's in fact, it's in the world called the ISIC card, the ISIC card, it's the International Student Identity Card. It's a big student card that, that's sold all over the world to students in every single, it's in every country in the world, actually. But hmm. I used to be the Irish director for Ireland. I was a boss for Ireland, basically, of this ISIC card. And what, the reason why I'm, I'm telling you the story is, I went to the main congress for Isaac when I was working for them for a year, uh, a couple of years ago, and I was in Copenhagen. Beautiful, beautiful city. And the, the Danish people, they're, they're really, really nice people. Um, and I remember there was somebody from literally every country in the world at the Isaac conference. And I remember the first morning of the conference, it started to snow in Copenhagen. Um, and again, I'd be quite used to snow. I live in Ireland. There wouldn't be a lot. It wouldn't be nice snow. It would just be bits of snow. But I remember, I remember being at breakfast on the morning of the first day of the conference, which was four days. And there was 126 nationalities there. And there was this girl standing. As I walked into the breakfast room, she's standing. She's like this, looking out the window in awe. And I said, what is going on with her? And I'd spoken to her the, the night before we did in the bar. There was a load of us there. And she was looking. I, I went over and said, are you okay? Because she looks like she's worried or something. And she said, yeah, yeah. I said, um, she said, I'm from Mexico. I, said, well, I knew that piece. I said, I've never seen snow before. Aww. And she was absolutely gobsmacked by this snow. And she had to actually go out inside and see what the snow was like. But why I'm telling you that story, it made me think about, we as a world are very similar, but we're very, very different. And what I love about international exhibitions or international businesses, meeting with somebody who's just very, very different from me, who's experienced very, very yes. different things than I have, yeah. And I can come back to Ireland and go, that was a really, not a lesson is the wrong word to use, but I would like to think that I do the same for them when, when I meet them as well. And to me, that makes you a better person, understanding how other people operate. Not really in a cultural experience, but maybe it is. Oh, it absolutely is. And I love that story because that's what, that's the sentiment that everybody who does global business has is that people, are, you know, want the same things. A smile means the same things, yeah. but we have different experiences. And if you can really open up yeah. and enjoy that, it becomes a fabulous place. So I think that's a oh, wonderful place yeah. to end. It is so warm. Thank you, Stephen, yeah. so much for sharing all this valuable information and your experiences. It's been a pleasure pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Okay. So listeners, thank you so much for listening. I hope uh, that you learned something and you're now ready to not be a Triska decaphobia. I have to read it, <laughs> and you understand. Triska decaphobia. Triska decaphobia, and now you know how to do your exhibits. Um, and remember that if it is international, to take language and culture into consideration. Definitely. Where can people reach you, Stephen? Yeah, absolutely. Please do connect with me. I mean, theexhibitionguide.com is my website. It's uh, I'm nearly finished. It's 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 up there, but I'm it's I'm revising it at the moment. But mainly LinkedIn, actually, Wendy. LinkedIn is where I I do ninety five percent of my content. So please do connect. You'll find me at the Exhibition Guy on LinkedIn. I love to connect with people from all around the world, share experiences, and help. More importantly, help people with with anything.
doesn't matter what it is. We're all in this together, so let's, let's work together. Okay. And obviously, you're very knowledgeable about exhibitions. So listeners, reach out to him if you have any questions. If you learned something today or had a chuckle, uh, tell somebody about this, particularly if you know that they're doing exhibitions, because I think it would be very helpful. And remember to subscribe uh, to uh, future episodes. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.